Scripture Study Project, our podcast dedicated to helping you discover the scriptures in a fresh way, invest your mind and heart into your personal study, and connect to God in your everyday life. We are your hosts, Zach and Krista Horton, and we're studying this week sections 125 through 128 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's uh, this is a unique block of scripture to study this week for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one, the church history surrounding these sections is uh, fascinating and uh, somewhat tricky to kind of navigate. The sections themselves contain two epistles, really, from Joseph Smith. Sections 127 and 128 are letters from him to members of the church. Which, that was the section that we studied last week also was a letter, or was that two episodes ago? Yeah, section 121 through... So what makes a letter and an epistle? Because I noticed that in the section heading they said epistles, but I thought, isn't that kind of the same thing? Or you said essentially epistles. Well, in those, in sections 121 through 123, it's one long letter that Joseph writes, and in that letter he weaves in some revelatory language where the Lord is speaking... And that's the predominant amount of section 121, well, of all of it, is the voice of the Lord speaking. What's not included is the other parts of the letter where Joseph himself is narrating. We get a little bit of that in the first six mm-hmm. verses. So, Whereas you'll notice in these chapters that it is just Joseph writing a letter, an epistle to, I mean, section, to the saints as he's in hiding. Section, section uh, essentially, section 128 is a scripture study led by the prophet. He's he's teaching a lesson about baptism for the dead. And about and, separate verses. You know, he'll quote those verses and yep. then teach about it. So, yeah, that makes it kind of unique. And I think, like you mentioned, a unique time. Joseph in hiding. Um, a hard time in the church right now with all that is going on as they have moved states and, again, are trying to navigate all that's happening with the government and building a new city and building a church. So what we want to do this episode is look at optimism. Specifically, how do we more optimistically look at our own difficulties and look at the difficult things we might learn or come to know about other people, whether it's people that are living in the environment around us or people from church history? Um, We... Right before we started recording this episode, we were um, trying to do something in our little small community here, and it wasn't going well. We won't give details, but it was frustrating. So we both came inside and were joking about how we really don't feel like doing a a podcast episode about the scriptures because we're just really ticked off right now. And so jokingly, I opened up to section 127, verse 2, And uh, just said to Krista, let's read the good word. And so I started reading verse 2, which says, And as for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me, as the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life. And for what cause it seems mysterious, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world for some good end or bad, as you may choose to call it. And we didn't laugh at that. Chris didn't laugh at that. I thought it was funny, but you didn't really think that was very funny. (laughs) I wasn't even in the mood to laugh at that moment, so I was just rolling my eyes. It's striking that that verse comes from a man who is going through, again, one of the hardest periods of his life. So 
the background to these sections. Uh, they're living in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith is being accused of an attempted, of being accomplice to an attempted assassination on former Governor Boggs in Missouri. So Governor Boggs, who's no longer the governor anymore, is sitting in his home reading a newspaper and someone shoots him. And uh, they find the gun outside, but they can't find any evidence of who it is or what what uh, what the motivation was. Uh, he's running for an open state Senate seat. And so they think, well, maybe it was a political rival because it's Missouri and that's the way you handle political rivalries, I guess. Um, but they also hear that Porter Rockwell was in Missouri around that time. And, of course, uh, the conflict between the state of Missouri and the church is uh, still fresh on everyone's minds. And so some of the political or some of the enemies of the church start to rile up the story of, well, maybe it was Joseph Smith that commanded Porter Rockwell to go and assassinate Governor Boggs. And so Governor Boggs asked the current governor of Missouri to ask the governor of Illinois to extradite Joseph Smith back to Missouri so that he can stand trial. Joseph knows that if he goes back to Missouri, he's not going to get a fair trial. So he goes into hiding. And for three or four months, he's hidden. He's going from house to house. He crosses the river and goes to Iowa until the governor of Iowa says he's going to do the same thing and send. Emma is sending letters to the different governors pleading, please don't arrest my husband. There's no case against him. How can you do this? And they're being respectful, but essentially declining her requests. And to add to it, we have the governor or the mayor of Nauvoo, John Bennett, who essentially has turned completely against uh, the church. Um, he is caught in some pretty despicable acts, confronted by Joseph and other church leaders, uh, excommunicated from the church, and then he um, leaves the city and starts writing letters to any newspaper that will listen and just making up anything he can that makes Joseph Smith sound bad. So he's flaming the fire. So all of that's swirling around. And then Joseph writes these letters, section 127 and section 128. And if you read them, the letters are filled with optimistic language. Uh, this is at the very end of section 128. And they're famous verses, but just to, to emphasize this optimism. Verse 19. Now what do we hear in the gospel which we have received? A voice of gladness a voice of mercy from heaven, and a voice of truth out of the earth, glad tidings for the dead, a voice of gladness for the living and the dead, glad tidings of great joy. And it goes on for three more verses, all of the different voices and the happiness and the joy and the blessings that have come. And so it's obvious that at least in the writings of Joseph Smith, he was able to retain a very optimistic perspective despite the trials that he and other church members are going through. Yeah, some of these verses specifically, and at the end, you can see this very excited, optimistic view of what's ahead for the church, specifically in those last sections, section 128, about baptism for the dead and the way that that, I mean, you can't help but feel the optimism of what the saints were feeling at that time because death was all around them. It was a really hard thing for them to deal with. They were excited to have these teachings about baptism for the dead. In fact, I love reading the stories of people when they first learned about this like teaching. Running of, into the river. Yeah, they were just so <laughs> excited and so relieved. Um, and so, but the general idea of what's happening 
uh, at this time is just there's a lot of heavy stuff that we've talked about them being taken out of all of the places that they've tried to live and even going to Nauvoo which um, section 125 talks about um, I was just thinking that that's even an optimistic move that they're making is like well we don't really have a choice so we're gonna go here and make this swamp look good that's that's a lot of optimism right um, and then you move on you think of all the other things that Joseph's talking about in building up the temple and baptisms for the dead um, this kind of these really big idea big um, optimistic I, I was gonna say theories that's not the right word these doctrines teachings yeah, practices that he's wanting people to keep track of what's happening with the baptisms and he's wanting them to um, really understand these bigger things that's gonna that are going to make their lives better it just seems just so optimistic and in this verse section 127 verse 8 for I am about to restore many things to the earth in spite of Joseph's situation and where the Saints are at right now he is still confident and optimistic that things um, are gonna work out for their good and I think that's a pretty good way to start to figure out how to be optimistic is looking at some of these examples. Yeah. For me, this week was um, was a bit of a struggle. Um, the last couple of weeks, I've been reading and grappling with just church history. And this is not a particularly pretty period of church history to study. There's a lot of confusion. Um, there's a lot of external persecution and internal turmoil. And there are quite a few episodes in church history that if left to themselves, you could be really tempted to view them very negatively, very pessimistically, both on the character of the prophet Joseph Smith and other church leaders on the church itself. It's just a difficult thing to read and to study. Well, and this is the time when polygamy was starting to be brought out amongst some of the members and Joseph was teaching that. And I mean, there's just some of those heavy things in our church history that um, need to be looked at, yeah. but also are hard. So I think what we want to ask is two questions in one for our invest question this week. One, of course, learning from the prophet Joseph Smith uh, and from other church leaders that had a similar perspective, how can we be more optimistic? How do we acquire that optimistic perspective when we're going through something difficult? But the second question similar to it is, how can we be more optimistic about others? Whether it's the people around us or the people that we're learning about in our own church history, how can we have a merciful, graceful, kind, and optimistic perspective of these people who were good and kind and loving and devoted disciples of Christ, but were trying to figure out things in a really messy world. How do we view them with more optimism as well? So for me, the first thing I noticed um, was actually from a verse that we've already read, that's section 127, verse 2. Joseph's talking about the perils that, they've, that he's been through. We already touched on those. At the end of the verse, he says, I feel like Paul to glory and tribulation, for to this day has the God of my fathers delivered me out of them all and will deliver me from henceforth. Um, and then verse 3, Let all the saints rejoice therefore and be exceedingly glad, for Israel's God is their God. I think as we go through these things, as we try and find optimism, that's the first thing 
always begin there where he is here, what he's teaching here, is that we begin with God. We remember our faith and we remember that he's with us through through our study, through the hard things you're going through with your faith, and also in the bigger picture of maybe the hard things that you're experiencing. Well, I think looking at others too to remember that uh, I am a child of God, therefore he's with me and cares about me and will help me and uh, and be with me. But so is everybody else. Uh, the difficult people that we might interact with on a daily basis and those that we study about. If we run into difficult things uh, to read about church leaders and church history, remembering that God was with them. It doesn't mean that they were perfect, of course, but it does mean that God was working with them and motivating them and inspiring them. And that's helpful to remember uh, at least for me, when I'm looking at others and trying to be more optimistic. I also think there's a balancing truth in that same verse. Joseph recognizes that Israel's God is our God and that uh, God has helped him. But he also makes this statement, which he's somewhat famous for, Nevertheless, deep water is what I am wont to swim in. It has become a second nature to me. I think realizing one thing at least that seems to have helped the prophet, especially as he's been through Liberty Jail and now comes out the other side of it, is he understands that for him as a prophet of God, uh, trials, difficulties, and persecutions are going to be expected. Moroni told him at the beginning of all this that his name would be had for good and evil. Now, that's true, of course, about the prophet Joseph Smith, but I think it's true about anyone that follows the Savior. Uh, following Christ means that you follow him through some of the persecution, some of the trials and difficulties that came to him. We can't expect to be Christians and follow Christ and escape some of the difficulties that come with it. And so I think the balancing truth to remembering that God is God and can do for us all great things is remembering that part of our experience is a mortal one and it's going to have trials and difficulties with it as we've kind of talked about in the last couple of episodes. And I think that goes for people present and in the past that have their own difficulties and are living these lives that we don't fully understand. So some of the parts that are hard about church history is this just that it's history. It's mm -hmm. a history of people and it's messy and it's there's no way that we can comprehensively pull as anything together, even though we try, and I love it. I love the historical resources that we have, but we can never really understand what was happening. There's a phrase I've come across recently called presentism, and it's where you view the past, but from the lens of the present. And it is, in some ways, a, a, a generalization or a judgment, a similar, not in in severity to racism or sexism, but with the same thing. You're viewing someone else through your own lens rather than trying to understand life from their perspective. And we are guilty of that when we look back in history that we judge historical figures based on what we see and what we experience today, not on what the world looked like for them. Well, and we've always loved the book by Stephen R. Covey, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. And so what came to my mind as I was thinking of this optimism is something that has really helped me is seek first to understand and then be understood is one of the things that Stephen R. Covey teaches in that book. And I've always loved that idea of really, well, not being, not being quick to judge of what their situation is or why they're acting some way because we don't know really what's going on um, inside their heads and inside their lives. 
Um, and I think that this can be really helpful as you study history and as you look at hard things, maybe even specifically in our church history. Um, although I just said you can't fully understand anything, it is so helpful to read about and to learn about and to just come to a better appreciation to realize, hey, these are just people. They're just trying their best. They're living their life. And not only does it humanize them much more um, to see all the sides of them, the the black and the white and the, all the grays in between, but I think it can really help us to understand better where they were coming from. In fact, that kind of leads into my answer to this question that came to me. How do you see yourself and others with more optimism? Uh, I love this line at the end of verse 21 in section 28. Uh, Joseph explains a very well-known truth that God gives line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And then he says this, giving us consolation by holding forth that which is to come, confirming our hope. In other words, the truth that God gives line upon line and precept upon precept means that he hasn't given us everything yet that he intends to give us us individually, us as a people, as a church. That's true about us. It's also true about uh, our, our, our uh, church founding fathers, if you will. Uh, he gave them line upon line. And there are things that we know and understand today that they didn't know and understand back then. That's just the way that God works with people and with, uh, with the church. And that can provide us both consolation and can confirm our hope. I can look forward, hopefully, to more light and truth and knowledge and understanding because that's the way that God works. He will give more. Another reason I like that verse is when I read line upon line, even though it wasn't intended this way, one of the images that came to me is the uh, image of God painting us line upon line, color upon color, contour upon contour, that our life is a canvas that God's painting and he's doing it bit by bit just as artists do. Um, uh, I have a friend that's, it's Tony Sweat, Anthony Sweat. He's uh, of course, uh, BYU, well-known BYU teacher and, uh, writer and artist. And Tony's done some incredible work with church history art, where he's kind of reimagined what some scenes from church history look like. And there's a painting I love of his about Joseph Smith called The Rough Stone. And it's this extremely colorful, contoured, even kind of gritty picture of Joseph Smith. And he writes, this is Tony writing a description about that painting. He says, Most religious leaders, while brilliant and inspired, are also complicated and imperfect. Sometimes in our reverence for their genius, we can smooth out every rough edge they may have with gentle layers of brushstrokes and luminescent varnish. But it's the very shadows that make highlights shine. It's the texture that makes us relate and feel like we want to extend our hand and touch something. It's each color, the reds and the blues, the yellows and the greens, with all their symbolic meaning that makes things truly rich. In my study of Joseph Smith as a scholar and believer, he is a colorful man. He is a mortal man. He is an inspired man. He is a revelatory man, all wrapped into one. I love that description of Joseph and I think we can apply that to ourselves and to other people. We are all colorful, contoured people. Even those that have been called to lead in the church, from prophets to primary teachers, 
uh, a calling does not necessitate perfection. It just means that God has taken whatever it is that makes up you and is using that unique blend of colors and contours and lines to do something in his kingdom. And for me, understanding that about myself and about others really helps me to be much more optimistic about uh, those contours, those shades of darkness and and uh, shadows that we might see. I love that so much. I think what better way to come to understand a person um, than just seeing all sides of them and seeing all the different colors because that's what people past and present are full of, right? Um, the last thing that I noticed um, to help us be more optimistic was in the end of section 128 is the language that Joseph uses as he ends out his letter. And now that I think of it as this epistle and letter to the people that he's separated from, it's almost kind of like the end of a motivational speech. Like, here's what I'm teaching you. Now we can do it. We can get out there and do it. Verse 19. Now, what do we hear in the gospel which we have received? A voice of gladness, a voice of mercy from the heaven, a voice of truth out of the earth, glad tidings for the dead, a voice of gladness for the living and the dead, glad tidings of great joy. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring glad tidings of good things. And so on and so on. He ends those last, the, um, the end of these sections with just rejoicing and remembering um how grateful he is for what they do have. And I think that optimistic language is helpful in any situation. I think that's really important. I've noticed, at least in myself, when I talk about myself or sometimes when I talk about others, there's a temptation to use very critical language as opposed to using kind, um, optimistic language, which I think um, certainly helps us and helps others. Well, and just, I think that we've shared bits of this before, but just Zach talked about some of his struggles of, um, this past few weeks. My struggle generally is that I am not a very optimistic person. So just know that these examples that we're giving are very personal for us that have really helped us be more optimistic. And I know that language is, in fact, I think Zach, you shared, um, one of my mantras that I say is like, the best possible outcome is unfolding. <laughs> that is one of my ways that I have to train myself to be more optimistic because sometimes I am just, I don't like to call myself a pessimist because I think people would be surprised that I am that, but I just maybe am more inclined to do the, have the cynical. And mm -hmm. so language is such an important part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the end of this letter, verse 22, the famous call that Joseph gives, brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. I love the call to move forward despite the fact that there are difficulties, trials, questions, um, and sometimes an unclear route. And I think if we're talking about connecting to God, if there's something practical we could do this week, it might be that. We are tempted, I think, when we run into trials or difficulties, questions or doubts, etc., about ourselves or about others, to stop. And I think the invitation to us from this section is push through, go on with courage, not with a perfect knowledge, but understanding that God gives line upon line, precept upon precept, 
having as optimistic a perspective as you can muster using optimistic language and remembering who you are and also who God is. So try that out this week. Find somewhere in your life where you might be tempted to just stop because of X, Y, or Z and instead decide to go on and move forward. We are so glad that you are here studying with us. Thank you for listening. We hope it's a great week. See you next time. Thank you.